Hey guys, welcome back to another episode of the Business of Cyber. My guest today is Adrian Lugwin, most recently the CISO and Chief Trust Officer at Atlassian. This truly was one of my favorite CISO conversations I've had in a long time. Now, why do I say that? Really two main reasons. First of all, we had a very thoughtful conversation about where we see the industry going and how things may evolve due to AI and just the sheer volume of security vendors. The second reason is since that we had a very personal conversation about his career. Adrian left Atlassian a few months ago, so we explored sort of what's important to him and the considerations and the approach that he's taking as he's exploring sort of what's next in his career and his life. And as someone who's sort of always thinking about my career and how I'm building a life for myself, I got a lot of value out of it and really hope you guys do too. Before we get into my conversation with Adrian, a quick word from the sponsor of today's show. Relying on a SIM in 2023 is like living in a college dorm room post-graduation. You're operating in an environment that you've outgrown. The Hunter SOC platform is purpose-built to help your security operations mature to the level you need to be at. ChargePoint, the world's largest network of electric vehicle charging stations, uses Hunter SOC platform to leverage its out-of-the-box detection content to more efficiently respond to new threats and vulnerabilities. It's time to move beyond SIM be sure to visit hunters.security to learn more. And if you're interested in sponsoring a few episodes of the Business of Cyber, be sure to get in touch at businessofcyber.com. Now, without further ado, I'm excited to hand it over to Adrian Ludwig. Well, the party is off to a good start. Adrian, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for joining me today. How are you? Thanks. Good. Glad to be here. Yeah, very good. So as a bit of context, you might maybe telling us a little bit about yourself, your background, and uh, how you found your way into the world of cybersecurity. Yeah, it's a funny... Um, I know there's people who think of themselves as always wanting to do security. I stumbled into it. Uh, I didn't know what I wanted to do and walked into my high school guidance counselor 25 years ago. Uh, and there was a new scholarship for kids, because uh, I was a kid at the time, uh, where the NSA would pay for you to go to school if you wanted to go into physics or math, uh, as long as you were willing to go work for them. And they thought it was a really cool idea to go be a spy. Uh, and so that was the genesis of me sort of getting into the security space. It was new at the time. Um, I originally thought I was going to be a lawyer or something more along those lines. And... Um, kind of just stumbled into it. But I've been in the security space since the mid-90s. Uh, at the time, it was very early internet. Um, you know, I sort of got my <clears throat> grounding on writing buffer overflows against Windows 95 and Windows 98, uh, advanced to Windows NT. Um, so some of your audience, you know, that'll give them fond memories. Some of them are like, what the heck is this guy talking about? Um, and then have kind of gone from there. And did you have a certain passion or, or were, you know, like physics and math sort of your best subjects? Like what, what sort of drew you maybe to that as a specialty early on? You know, what was interesting about it? Uh, my teachers described me as an iconoclast. Um, people can go look that up. It stuck with me for a long time. Um, but it basically means when I look at something, I always like to think about how to think about it differently from other people. Okay. Uh, and so the technical element of math and science definitely made sense uh, and was necessary to be successful in security. Uh, but ultimately, it's that worldview of, you know, 
how could I break this down? How could I do it differently? What is the mistake that somebody wouldn't have thought of when they were building this thing? Uh, And that's sort of been in the core of how I think about the world. And so that fits in very well with like the hacker ethos. Yeah. Um, And, and these are, you know, these are my people uh, and I I get along with them. I get along just enough with the non-security folks to be able to be a bridge. And that's a really important part of the role of uh, a leader in the security space is helping um, true security diehards be successful in getting their message across and being able to influence the rest of the world. Yeah. Okay. So safe to assume started your career at, at the NSA. Yeah. How did you sort of get to the point where you came to serve as, as CISO and, and chief trust officer at Atlassian? So always uh, in a fairly technical role. Uh, so NSA and then went to be a consultant for a while, did work at Microsoft and into it. Uh, eventually realized that consulting and I'll put it bluntly, finding the same mistakes at every company over and over again uh, and not seeing anybody solving them particularly well was, was a little disappointing. Um, so I went to Macromedia, uh, makers of Flash and Dreamweaver, uh, which later became part of Adobe uh, and helped build the security there. Um, at that point, this would have been the early 2000s, there were a couple of big tech companies that had profound security investment you know, Microsoft being noteworthy, Oracle, a few others, but there weren't very many of us. Uh, and so Adobe had one of the stronger security organizations at the time, um, still does, um, but it was pretty early days then. Uh, again, built it up, got comfortable with it, uh, went to a couple startups, did a little bit of different work there. Um, while I was at Adobe, I had a really interesting uh, opportunity one of my managers said, you know, security's going well. Um, you seem a little bored. Uh, you know, why don't you look around the company and see if there's something else you want to do? Uh, and so I did that. I like wandered the halls, I guess you could say, and found an opportunity actually in marketing. Uh, we were beginning to work on having our products work on mobile devices. We were beginning to try to integrate Flash and some of the uh, uh, Adobe sort of original products uh, into a developer experience called Adobe Air. Uh, and that seemed like a great opportunity for me to step away from the sort of cynical, dark, think about all the problems sort of perspective that most security practitioners have and begin to think more uh, optimist, positive. How can we build something that works really, really well? Yeah. Uh, and so I worked in marketing uh, at Adobe for a few years. Um, eventually got contacted by Google uh, and asked if I wanted to work on Android. Uh, at the time, there were two or three Android devices. Flash had gotten onto one of them, so I'd had some interactions with that team. I was like, well, it looks pretty good. It certainly uh, was among the better mobile devices at the time. Uh, and for me, what was interesting was uh, it was a reset, right? Brand new set of platforms for mobile devices. Mobile was starting to pick up speed. Those platforms had been conceived of with a application model and a security model that was very different from the desktop. Mm-hmm. Um, nobody gets to write device drivers, right? In the mobile world. And that's still true today. Uh, and a lot of that comes down to security. Uh, a lot of it comes down to if you open up the very bottom layers of your stack, it's just impossible to have a robust security model. Uh, and so I was intrigued by the opportunity to sort of reset some of the security paradigm that, 
had made it so difficult to, and still makes it so difficult to secure platforms that are desktop-based platforms or, or even sort of open source server-based platforms. Uh, and mobile is just totally different in that regard. Yeah. Uh, and, and then did that for about seven, eight years. Uh, and then about a little over five years ago, uh, Atlassian uh, reached out. Uh, I was thinking about doing something different. And here was a company that uh, was core to how it is that teams collaborate. It was core to how it is that the world makes software uh, and was trying to think about how to make customers comfortable with the idea of having that sort of core part of their infrastructure be in the cloud. Mm-hmm. Uh, what do we need to do technically? What do we need to do from a market perspective to, to build that kind of confidence? And so um, have worked with them for about five years on, on that. And I think we've been pretty successful. There's a couple of specific things you said that I'd love to dig into a little bit more, but before we do that, um, just sort of broadly speaking, as you reflect on sort of the various roles you've had in the security landscape, what's something that you know now that you wish you knew at the beginning of your security career? Um, so I came from that math background, right? Uh, and I think... Most people aren't coming from math; they're coming from some other computer science function. But ultimately, they think about the technology. Uh, and it took me a solid ten, fifteen years to realize that having a perfect understanding of the technology, uh, or even a deep understanding of the technology, yeah, it was important. But it wasn't as important as having a deep understanding of the organization, the people, uh, and what motivated them, how they were thinking about problems, what things could get done easily, what things could get done more, you know, were going to be more difficult to get done. Uh, and ultimately, I think um, that's the key thing that it, I had to learn that sort of through school of hard knocks, uh, you know, something that could take five minutes technically could take nine months if you didn't know how to get it done. Mm-hmm. Uh, you didn't know who to ask. You didn't know the right way to frame the question. Um, something that takes nine months, if you knew the right person, they might be able to tell you how to do it in, in a few hours. Uh, and I learned that really, really clearly when working on Android, there were a number of people that I worked with. Diane, uh, in particular, is a woman that works on uh, the core part of the framework and her ability to like see a problem, understand the problem, manipulate the problem and just get it done was so far beyond anything that I could do, um, that, my trying to think about the technology and solve it wasn't as valuable as understanding how the organization worked and who yeah. the right people were within that. Uh, and so that's something that um, I think you can over-index on that, mm-hmm. uh, but uh, it's pretty hard um, if all you think about is the tech and, and aren't aware of the people uh, sure. involved in how these things get built. I'd, I'd love to maybe dig into sort of how you applied that lesson maybe once you learned it. So could you sort of elaborate on that point? Like, did you invest more in those relationships, spend more time across the business, et cetera? Some of it is relationships. Mm -hmm. Um, And it's like one-on-one, right? What what does Joey care about? Um, What's Joey like as a person? A lot of it is what are the organizational incentives that exist? Um, If you're in a company the size of Atlassian, you've got several thousand developers that are working. Um, When they get up in the morning, they're thinking about building features. That's that's what we want them to do. Uh, they're not thinking about security. And in fact, contrary to this view that, you know, we can train them to think about security and have everybody. No, that's not, that's not the way the organization is going to work most effectively. Uh, so the question is, how do you build incentives into 
the organizational structure? How do you build it into the tools and uh, the, the review processes that are involved in a feature being built and then being released? Um, we have sort of principles or sort of iconic elements of a secure development lifecycle, like threat modeling. Um, but the threat model itself is not the point. The point is you want to have someone smart who understands what a threat is, think about threats, and then incorporate that into the process of how those features get built. Uh, and so how to actually have that be part of the process uh, as opposed to a bolted on element of the process um, is that's basically, that's what I do. That's what I'm good at at this point. Uh, yeah. and, and as we were designing the, the process at Atlassian, um, a lot of it was from first principles. Um, you know, how should we design our metrics so that people um, are able to know that we're secure without thinking about being secure? Um, there are things like zero-based metrics that Amazon has talked a lot about that make it easy to know when you're off course so that it's easier to get back on course. Yeah. Um, and a lot of different ways to approach that. So I think Atlassian was the first place where um, from the very beginning, I was conscious of that. And, and we've been trying to incorporate that into the way that we've done things. Yeah. Another topic that uh, I'm curious to sort of understand maybe your your point of view on, on if this was sort of an, an intention of just the arc of your career, or if it's just sort of, you know, how things happened was uh, I've noticed and just kind of preparing for the interview, you have a wide range of experiences and, and you've mentioned, you know, a couple of things like, you know, experimenting with marketing, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so I'm curious how, when you think about, you know, not just security, but marketing and product management and, you know, other types of roles that you've had throughout your career, yeah. um, maybe what's that has uh, sort of taught you or um, how that has helped you become sort of a more uh, effective security leader as a result? Um, I, I don't know if it's intentional or not, um, which I guess means it's not, uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. but, it, but it is at the same time. Uh, what, what it comes down to for me is, um, you know, you need to understand the technology because there are, it's like physics, right? You can't do things that are impossible. Um, that said, there are a lot of things that are physically possible, but are really, really hard. Uh, and so you have to figure out how to make it, um, the possibility comes out of getting people to be motivated and wanting to get stuff done. Uh, and some of that is organizational behavior and organizational dynamics and it's human psychology and it's politics and those things. Some of it is marketing. Uh, it's how do I convince a group of people that they want to go in the same direction? Yeah. Um, collectively, we sort of have marketing and organizational behavior. That's leadership when it comes to an organization. Uh, and what's interesting to me is over time, um, you know, we've decomposed each of these different little parts into their own little fiefdom. Uh, but in practice, the people who are really effective leaders, the people who are really great at rallying an organization to do hard things, have all of those elements. Uh, and the definition of hard thing is going to vary from place to place, right? In some organizations, sales is the hard thing because the product is not changing that much or the market is not changing that much. Uh, for most tech companies, technology leadership is what's needed. And so you have to have sort of core technical skills. You have to have... And so it's somewhat intentional uh, that I've built those up as both specialists and now more as a generalist. Yeah. Uh, but I think uh, when you look at the, the, the most successful leaders across technology, they tend to have 
those elements either either implicit because it's sort of been part of the role from the very beginning or because they've added it up over time. Yeah. Uh, in security, it tends to be pretty hard to get to a point where you have senior experience, right? Because we tend to be a smaller part of the organization. Um, and, and, you know, a, a security leader who has 50 direct reports, you know, 50 people within their organization, that's a fairly senior security leader across the industry. Sure. Yeah. Um, the average engineering VP probably has 200 yeah. Uh, and, and that's not a, a particularly senior role uh, in a larger engineering organization of, say, 2000. Um, and so there's this interesting um, sort of balancing there in terms of how do you, how are you going to build that breadth of experience? You sort of have to move out of pure play security if you're going to get that leadership experience. Yeah. So I'm curious, like if, you know, what, if you are mentoring someone early in their career who has that ambition is that sort of specific advice that you would give is you know experiment dabble in different domains to maybe you know build up sort of some sort of breadth of experience and then come back and specialize a little further on or what what would be sort of you know how you would approach that early career mentorship great question um i don't know that i have ever specifically counseled that uh, to people that I've mentored. But what I have seen is a lot of the opposite, which is people hmm. coming from other dimensions and beginning to be interested in adding security to their portfolio and realizing there's a very real opportunity there. Yeah. Uh, so engineering leaders who've managed uh, a midsize to a large, you know, they've been an engineering director somewhere, they've had 50 people. Um, they're very well qualified from a leadership standpoint to be a fairly senior security person. Yeah. Um, a, a leader that's coming from a marketing and PR environment that's high stress, high pressure, because that turns out the vast majority of security is don't melt when, when things start to hit the fan. <laughs> yeah. uh, they can be very well positioned for, for uh, a security career as well. Yeah. Um, um, so many of the folks that come into security, I think, come with a very technical bent. Mm-hmm. Um, that probably if, if they can, uh, if they're comfortable sort of pressuring themselves in, in a, in a role outside of security, that would make a lot of sense. They could build a lot of character that way. Yeah. Yeah. But I, I actually hadn't, hasn't come up. Great yeah. question. I'm curious, you know, based on just sort of what you've seen from maybe your peers, other security leaders that, that, you know, what do you see as maybe the most common pitfalls that security leaders make? Uh, over-indexing on perfection. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I think this is sort of a mid-career uh, to earlier flaw. Um, you know, that's not a good enough system. That's not going to catch all the problems. Um, it's like, well, yeah, but the current system that we have catches very few. Uh, and the new one is going to catch half of them or two-thirds. That's a huge improvement. We should just do it, uh, especially yeah. if it's easy. Um, so that's one, um, I think, uh, another is thinking that you can educate people, <laughs> mm. uh, and it makes me sad to say that, but, uh, you know, it's, it's human nature to not want to be educated and just want to go do stuff, uh, you know, um, you know, and, and thinking that we can, you know, teach developers not to make mistakes, uh, that we can, teach uh, users not to click on a uh, phishing email, 
Uh, I think, uh, no, uh, those things are good, but they're not going to be sufficient. Uh, so you need to do, you need to be thinking about a technical solution. Anytime uh, a human making a better decision is part of your plan, uh, there needs to also be some kind of technical improvement to the system to, to backstop the very likely possibility that some other human is going to make the same mistake. Um, I think that's what it comes down to. Yeah. You know, on, on that second point, there's such a, uh, you know, like prevalent part of the industry that is uh, focused on kind of educating the mm-hmm. importance of security and, and our, you know, the criticality of security with different leaders throughout the business. So how do you think about approaching that while at the same time, you know, there's, um, you know, people just push back on, on being educated sort of more generally? Um. Yeah, it's it, in some instances there's ignorance. Uh, I, I think there's some amount of need for basic education, mm-hmm. uh, but I think all too often, um, if you're relying on a critical decision uh, at a moment that um, you know you as a security practitioner have seen it before, uh, and you kind of know roughly what the right decision is. Um, then that's the moment where you should be thinking about putting technical controls in place. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I, I agree. There's a, um, it just seems like we think we can train our way out of the problems that we've built. And the way that we've built them is that we've built technology that is just too complicated. Yeah. Uh, and what we need to do is go back and simplify it and figure out how to make changes. And that's, um, you know, we spent years uh, thinking about web browsers and, and how to design uh, you know, the lock icon to be more robust. Uh, and it was only when the Chrome team basically said, no, there just should never be a website that doesn't have a lock icon. Yeah. Uh, and it should always be SSL. And then let's push everybody to be on it. That all of a sudden that problem uh, became something that was manageable. Yeah. Um, it's a good segue into another topic that I'm kind of curious to get your point of view on. Um, obviously it's a, a massive kind of buzzword and been a hot topic for the last you know few months, but uh, <laughs> I'd love to talk about AI. Um, and by the, by the time the blog post, this, this comes out, we'll probably, the world will have ended. The human species will have been eradicated. I know I got to launch it tonight or something. Make sure we, <laughs> we, we get our message out. <laughs> um, but I'm curious just to kind of understand, you know, very broadly speaking, we could probably have a whole episode just on this, but like both the opportunities and the risk that you see AI presenting to, you know, trust and security teams for, for large enterprises. I wish I could boil it down to like three talking points. Um, yeah, there's, there's tons. Um, so my first interaction with AI uh, it was in the context of Android and Google. Uh, we had a team of analysts that were looking for malware on Android, similar to what an antivirus team would do, part of Google Play Protect. Uh, and at some point we realized those analysts could find malware, uh, but what they weren't as proficient at is looking across the hundreds of thousands of applications that were out there and finding the copycat instance that existed, right? Because most malware writers, what they'll do is they'll build 50 different versions of something and they'll put it out there. And we might find one. Uh, but basic clustering algorithms, uh, sort of the, you know, that level of AI, uh, made those analysts thousands of times more efficient. 
once we got them in place, once we became proficient at deploying them, you know, an analyst would find something. We would say, find, you know, show me the things that are closest to it. An analyst would be like, oh, this one actually looks and and they could just scale their work so incredibly fast. Yeah. Uh, we still needed technical proficiency. Uh, it wasn't a replacement for the human analyst, but it was a force multiplier for sure. Uh, I think there are lots of opportunities across the technology space for that type of force multiplying effect using AI. Um, now, we were a team of engineers at Google who were AI specialists. It took us a year to get to the point where we could use a, a specialized process. That was six years ago. Uh, things have accelerated massively since then. Uh, do I think I could aim an off-the-shelf AI, uh, even something as sophisticated as ChatGPT or Bard, at um, that problem and it would be able to answer it? No, because it doesn't. The training data simply doesn't exist for a lot mm -hmm. of the security problems. Uh, but I think over the next year or two, we'll probably begin to see it. Um, so it, it's not that far off that uh, we'll begin to see a lot more efficiency there. Um, I'm probably a little bit out of date, but I remember at some point listening to you know the radio and somebody commenting that there were there was a shortage of IT security professionals. We were short about a million, and I was like, wait a minute, there's only you know, 150 million people in the United States, really 3%. Like how, how in the world can we be off by a million? Like, are there even a million people in it security that were yeah. short by that many? Uh, it just doesn't make any sense. So that force multiplier is hugely valuable, right. Uh, yeah. to help clean some of those gaps. Um, are there risks? Sure. Um, you know, it's taken us, 50 years since we found the buffer overflow to eradicate it completely. Oh wait, you know, how many were in the last uh, security bulletin put out by Microsoft by, you know, Apple for the iPhone? Like we haven't eradicated it. Uh, yeah. So it's going to be a long time before we understand the vulnerabilities that exist within AI, much less know how to solve them, much less are able to effectively roll out those solutions at scale. Uh, so I think we're a long way from having robust security understanding, uh, much less practical implementation, like very little of security is actually greenfield, uh, where we're just, you know, discovering how to solve that problem. Most of the problems that we're trying to solve are, we know how to solve it. We're just trying to figure out how to make it a practical deployment in the context of a large enterprise. Yeah. Uh, so I think in that sense, AI is. Um, we're, we're quite a ways away from, from really understanding what it is that we're unleashing in terms of security implications. Yeah. I know we're, um, you know, to, to your point, it's, you know, kind of a position, a point where we're in a position where we have to just you know, pay attention and mm -hmm. see how things will continue to unfold over, you know, the next few, few weeks, months and, and quarters. Um, I'm curious, you know, if you were in sort of a security leadership role at a large enterprise right now kind of yeah. what would you be doing would you be you know putting kind of an ai security strategy in place would you be like what, what would the steps be that you're taking within your organization uh so there's two functions you might have uh one is looking at your own security organization and asking what are the things that we're doing right now where we could benefit from using ai yeah uh, now it could be that you're going to use a commercial product for some of those things. Uh, it could be that you're looking at, you know, tasks that are manual, uh, that exist in your workflow, could be Jira, ServiceNow, whatever. 
uh, where those vendors are incorporating features that will make them more efficient. Uh, but I think there's a lot of toil within the security space. And so there's a huge opportunity there. Yeah. Uh, if you're a company that is um, deploying AI, which you probably are uh, somewhere, uh, then you want to be beginning to think about how do I inventory it? How do I manage it? How do I know where it's being used, what data it's touching? Um, you know, as a sort of advisor to a, a number of small companies and um, an investor in some of them, the number of companies that are sort of trying to solve once you know that you're using AI and once you know that you're using it for a specific use case, validating that use case, that's everybody's interested in that. Yeah. Um, but just finding it in your environment, like basic inventory, basic discovery turns out to be a problem that has plagued security, not in the AI space, but in like the IT infrastructure space for decades. Yeah. Uh, and that's going to be, I think, the next thing that you'd want to focus on in context of AI. It's just like trying to get a handle on where is it being used and what's it being used for? What data is being fed into it? Is that just because, just to simplify here, just because the barrier to entry is so low, somebody can go on, have a BART account in a second and be inputting something potentially sensitive? It's the... It's the barrier to entry being so low and the excitement being so high uh, and the the need for a security team to know how much they need to think about this. Yeah. Um, it's possible your organization is not doing anything, uh, in which case you should think about how to use it in the context of you know security, but you don't need to necessarily think about how it has an implication elsewhere in the business yet. Um if it turns out your sales team and your marketing team is using it to do a bunch of, you know, predictive marketing and figure out how to reach out to particular customers. Okay. You're going to want to go learn more about that. Right. Uh, Cause what you don't want to do from a security organization standpoint is I want to use the word metastasize. Um, you know, you don't want to have that become established and three years from now have someone say, Oh, you know what? We need to talk to the security team about this. Yeah. And then, no matter what you recommend, it's, it's not going to work. This is, again, that organizational sort of behavior and glue is if it gets to a point where it's well-established, then your guidance can only be stop. No, 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 no. Yeah. Um, whereas if you're able to get involved in the conversation super early on, uh, then it's like, hey, how are you thinking about using it? What are better ways we could do that? Have we, those kinds of discussions become much more flexible discussions because there's not a business process that's already built around something that the yeah. security organization might be uncomfortable with. That sparks another question. Um, I'd love to understand whether it's within the context of, you know, your, your role at Atlassian, or if there's a better example from a prior company, that'd be great too. But maybe how it is that you have sort of built and maintained that type of relationship so that if we look at that example, you know, you find out the Atlassian sales and marketing team is using it and Hey, I want to get involved early so that I can put guardrails on this and be sure nothing shady is happening, but I'm also not getting in the way of them, you know, doing better predictive marketing. Can you talk yeah. to maybe how you would manage that? Um, this is another thing that I guess I learned later in my career. Um, the relationship that you have with the different parts of the organization, um, those are the most important relationships that determine the successful how successful you'll be as a leader in your org. 
Uh, and, you know, having uh, a good relationship, a healthy relationship, of course, but also having one where it's understood what the role is. Um, so our head of, you know, platform engineering and I had a very crisp expression at Atlassian um, that we put in place a couple of years ago, which was, you know, my job as the leader of the security organization is to make sure that our ability to discover vulnerabilities and route that information to the engineering team is best in class. Your job is as head of engineering to make sure that the, the rate at which we resolve those issues is best in class. Uh, and my second job as head of GRC and head of security as well is to make sure that both of those two things are happening. Um, but there's a critical thing here, which is if the bug doesn't get fixed, my job is to let you know that you're not doing your job head of engineering. It's not yeah. to fix it. Uh, and uh, it's also not because, again, my job is to make sure that we're best in class at finding issues. If your team as engineering can't keep up with the rate at which we're finding issues, I shouldn't slow down. Uh, and it's, I, it's, I love you. Uh, I don't want to, you know, hurt you. Uh, you know, our relationship is a positive one, but ultimately my, I can't, uh, relent on my obligation to be as good as possible. Uh, and we have to work through that and we have to make sure that your team is able to do it and, and resolve it. Um, and yeah. so, I think the critical thing there is, you know, what the bounds of that relationship are and what the expectations are has to be very, very explicit up front. Uh, and, and then, you know, he, he can backstop when a team says, why are you filing so many tickets? Why are we finding so many issues? And his backstopping is, yeah, well, they've been found. We have to fix them. Yeah. Uh, and we know it's going to be hard, but we have to do it. Um, and, and the other element that I thought was really, really interesting, it wasn't obvious to me early in my career, uh, was that. The security community is a community. Uh, and I talk with CISOs from outside of Atlassian all the time. I talk, you know, um, but most of what I need to do to be successful is going to be within my organization. So that community is actually external. Uh, and if I'm spending a lot of my time going to Black Hat and a lot of my time talking to other security people, I'm probably fostering relationships with people who are not actually going to help me do my job. Uh, and that's a little bit tricky, uh, yeah. to realize that my closest relationships would need to be with non-security people, um, in order for me to be effective. Yeah. Now I'd love to maybe take a slight pivot here to sort of another topic that you had mentioned a few minutes ago and want to, want to step back to, and is, uh, sort of your general, um, sort of the other work you do in, in investing and advising, um, security startups. So. Uh, I'm sure we'll get into some lessons learned and, and some specific examples, but kind of at a high level, what is it that you look for when you're you know, evaluating companies to invest in or advise? Yeah, uh, I'm sure everybody has their own investment thesis uh, and why it is it they're trying to do things. And I don't even know if my investment thesis is a particularly good investor thesis. Um, so far, I'm, I haven't retired. Uh, <laughs> But I, I look at it from my perspective as a security practitioner. Uh, and yes, I have to solve security. But when it comes to vendors, the problem that I have to solve is there's too many vendors. <laughs> and they all have this small little solution to a small little problem. Uh, and then it's my job to figure out how to glue all those pieces together. Uh, and there are some roll-ups 
where they have accumulated a number of companies over years. Um, but even those, I think, have struggled to build um, a unified experience yeah. uh, that makes it easy to solve problems. So that's one challenge, right? Is there's just too many things out there. Uh, and then the second challenge is, I mentioned threat models earlier, right? We've deified threat models. We said threat models are amazing. Uh, ultimately, I don't care about threat model. What I care about is, does a threat model facilitate somebody finding the problem? And does that finding of that problem facilitate someone resolving the problem and making it go away? In the same way, I don't care about CVEs. What I care about is having an environment that has no CVEs. So I care about anti-CVEs, uh, right? I don't care yeah. about how many bugs get filed. I care about how many bugs get avoided or never get shipped. And so most of the outputs from security products are actually the opposite of what I want. They increase my awareness of a problem, but what I actually want is a solution. Uh, and so the security products that I'm most interested in are ones that try to take a bigger slice, not a very narrow slice, and try to figure out how they're going to help get somebody to the solution as quickly as possible. Yeah. Um, not stopping sort of halfway along. Uh, and so a lot of my conversations with uh, companies are, you know, when I first turn this thing on, am I going to suddenly feel less secure? Okay. Have you thought about what the evolution of the usage of this product is going to be, or the set of tools is going to be to get to the point where I'm actually more secure? Uh, and once I get to that point, how do you have sustainable value for the organization so that they want to continue running it? Um, and, and those are the companies that I think are most interesting to me. Um, because my, my ultimate thesis is N years into the future. I used to say 20, but it turns out it's been that it hasn't happened yet. So I guess yeah. it's 50, uh, security goes away. Uh, mm. you know, security on mobile devices compared to security on, um, you know, desktop operating systems, it's basically gone away. You don't have to think about it. It got baked into the platform. It got baked into the way the app stores work. It got baked into how that development models for those applications work. So like 95% of security and the level of investment you have to do on managing those things has been taken into the platform. Uh, I think that's going to happen throughout the rest of our computing stack. Uh, and so those products that survive are the ones that somehow are able to solve a huge part of the problem and then get absorbed into those platforms. Um, and so... Uh, I, I actually think the the CISO security leadership function is going to is is it'll be around for a little while longer, but it's not. Eventually, it's got to go away. Yeah, I'm I'm very much with you on sort of the in your face security over time being abstracted away. Um, mm -hmm. I'm curious to get your thoughts on kind of the business model behind that. Like if we. You know, imagine some fictitious tar startup today that's doing yeah. a really good job of that. How do they have a business five years from now or 10 years from now? Yep. Um, I think they get acquired and they get incorporated into one of the platforms. And then I, but I think security as a standalone product. Yeah. I just don't, I just don't see it. Um, and, and I guess that's partly because I feel like, um, the consumer is, as we've structured the market, 
Mm-hmm. Uh, it's so difficult for a consumer to understand what it is that they're buying and whether or not it's helping them. Yeah. Uh, and so they're buying a notion of what it is that they're getting, uh, but they can't actually confirm that it works. Um, and so it's really, really tricky. Uh, one of the things that we've tried to do in, I did this at Google, we've done it at Atlassian as well, is, is, is try to get to the point where you have a sufficiently centralized way for dealing with security products, right? It's a single pipeline that ingests output from various different tools so that you could conceivably run three instances of competitor tools that should be producing the same results. Uh, And I think once we, you know, once companies start to do that, they'll realize one of two things, either it's a commodity or they're highly differentiated. And oh my gosh, none of them are actually finding all of the things uh, in which case, eventually over time, it gets commoditized. But right now, everybody runs one network scanner, one vulnerability scanner, one. Uh, and so you just have no way to baseline whether what you're doing is good or not. Yeah. Um, so it's, it's it's difficult. How, how do you see that changing sort of the, you know, like security as a career field? You know, like right now, you know, to the, the stat of, a million open security jobs yeah. or whatever it was, you know, 3% of the U S adult population needs to start studying security in the free time to CISOs won't exist because security is kind of baked into everything. How do you see it developing as a career field then? Um, I guess I probably have a very contrarian view on that. Um, I think it gets smaller. Uh, you know, I think, the the need for technical implementation uh, and the security pure play is going to get less and less over time. Um, you know, the vast majority of um, I'll, I'll just pick something right. Um, people who are looking at scan results uh, coming out from a vulnerability scanner, turning those into tickets, then trying to convince their engineering team to actually resolve those tickets. Yeah, I think that um, that should there's not a ton of value creation that's taking place there. Mm-hmm. Um, so some combination of automation that minimizes the number of times that you deploy something that is already known to be vulnerable, plus, uh, you know, platform level restrictions that make it more difficult to incorporate vulnerabilities, plus AI workflows that uh, do the patching more quickly in a more automated fashion. All of those things should reduce the number of people that are necessary in order to do what are basically sort of straightforward maintenance tasks. Yeah. And do you, do you see that being applied to sort of the, the compliance requirements and like frameworks that, you know, basically every large company has to follow as well as for sure. For sure. Yeah. Yeah. The, the thing that I always ask is, you know, why can I create, and maybe this will become a feature. I should go patent it, but like, (laughs) why is it possible to create a instance on AWS that's running a out of date version of an operating system and an out of date version of an app server. And I expose that the internet yeah, without any alarm bells going off. Like everybody knows it's vulnerable. Every scanner knows it's vulnerable. Uh, like just no. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, that, that should be a thing that at that platform level just can't be done. Yeah. Um, and if you carry that, approach throughout your entire stack that's probably 95 percent of the problems that are out there yeah well i want to make 
one more hard left into our sort of okay. final topic before we we wrap this up. Um, I know, you know, as of this recording, it's been a couple of weeks since you transitioned out of your your role at Atlassian, and um, maybe as our, our last couple of minutes, would love to just sort of ask you some questions about sort of how you're thinking about what's next for you. Um, sure. Not you know specific like types of jobs or functions, um, unless you know you have that already ironed out, but more of just kind of your thought process for how you're approaching this next phase of your career and, and maybe like what would be important to you to, um, you know, accomplish or to get out of uh, whatever's next for you. Culturally, we now all um, talk about privilege uh, and, you know, I, I recognize that I'm incredibly privileged in lots of ways. Um, one of them is that I have a happy, healthy family. Uh, we like to spend time together. Uh, the idea of me being home more for a little while was very exciting. Yeah. Uh, and, and so um, that's a privilege. There's also the privilege that I can do that. Uh, and, um, you know, some of the decision-making process was around that, right? Like I saw a blog post not too long ago. Somebody said, you only have 18 summers with your kids what are you doing this summer? And I was like, I know what I'm doing. (laughs) Uh, And, you know, for the first time in, they've been alive 12 years, 12 years, I could say that, uh, which was really exciting. Yeah. Uh, But the corollary to that is, um, what am I going to do that they can look at that and say, I'm proud of my dad uh, and I'm proud of what contributions he's made to the world and what it is that he's been able to do. Um, and so for me, that's what it comes down to. Um, you know, I've been very fortunate to work on really hard problems, uh, but most of the reason that I ended up working on them was that I was excited about them. Uh, and they were really, really interesting to me. And my brain gets activated by that kind of complexity. My brain gets activated by feeling like what I'm doing every day makes a difference. Um, there was a picture when I was on Android that I used to show of, um, it was actually of a charging cable. <clears throat> it was a single cable coming out of a door uh, to like a, a extension cord to a brick with like 30 phones being charged on it. Uh, and those were the Android phones that were being charged. Bef- it was like from National Geographic or something uh, before people got onto a boat uh, on the North coast of Africa and tried to go across the Mediterranean to get to Europe hmm. and the entirety of their identity, the entirety of what they cared about was on those devices. And I was like, I'm dedicating my current part of my life to making those devices secure and robust and reliable, uh, so that they can have what for all intents and purposes is their only connection back to their homeland on those phones. Yeah. Oh, and that phone costs like $14, uh, you know, not a thousand dollars. Uh, yeah. And so it's accessible to them, uh, but it's also secure. Um, so um, that's sort of how I think about it is how can security make that kind of an impact and how can I be in a role where I can make that kind of an impact? Yeah. Um, I really don't know what that'll be. Uh, you know, we've got so many interesting problems that are in the security space. Um, and and which ones turn out to be interesting ultimately comes down to which are the ones that have, you know, real world impact and have people who really care who are working on them. And I love working with people who really care and, and, and want to make difference. So, um, I don't know. Uh, yeah. 
I was in a position where it's fortunate that I can take a little bit of time and think about it and uh, get back to it sometime yeah. in the future. Um, but that's the big thing for me is, um, I don't know, like the idea of having your, my kids say what he did was cool when really they, the problem is three years ago in the pandemic, they realized that what I do is I sit here and I type <laughs> on a computer and it's not cool. Uh, <laughs> uh, and, and I, I use my little phone to, to send text messages and that's not cool either. Yeah. Um, so, uh, you know, just trying to make a difference in the world, I think is what it comes down to. <laughs> yeah, cool. Are there like certain pockets of, uh, the security ecosystem you, you mentioned, you know, just sort of your brain being activated by really challenging problems, you know, like if you had to maybe dedicate yourself to a problem today, is there a certain like problem or series of problems that come to mind that so, may be more interesting than others? <laughs> So there's a variety. Uh, I think secure development lifecycle um, is interwoven with everything in terms of how we create products. Uh, it's very broken. Uh, and the consequence of it being very broken is what could be relatively efficient uh, and compact and do a really, really good job of making software more secure uh, is bloated it's complicated and it's fraught with peril. Uh, so that is interesting to me. Yeah. Uh, there are a number of places where, and that's a human, there's a human element to that as well. Like how we build software is ultimately a human process. Uh, it, but it's kind of behind the scenes. Like you don't think about it because it's within enterprises that are building things. Um, I think there are two other areas where right now there's a human interaction that's much more visible. Um, I think how devices and automation of those devices uh, interacts with the world, whether that's, you know, self-driving cars and what that needs to look like, whether that's, you know, devices in your home and what that needs to look like, that space I think is also really, really fraught with interesting privacy, uh, government relations, company to consumer relations types of problems. Yeah. and. Most of security from a non-technical standpoint comes down to ambiguity and what the expectations are and the interactions. Mm -hmm. uh, and so I think there's a huge opportunity there to help define what that looks like. Yeah. Um, and, and then AI is just like the way we're thinking about it now with LLMs and ingesting tons of data and then having it be relatively general purpose. Um, there's huge opportunity there as well. Um, but I don't even know what that looks like. Um, I'm also curious to see um, whether we're still going uphill, uh, in terms of expectations and what it is that's possible there, or whether we crested and, you know, we're going to retreat for 20 to 30 years before we, we go back uphill. I feel like we're still on the uphill, Yeah, um, that there's still a lot of opportunity there. Yeah. Um, but I think people were pretty excited about, you know, interstellar transport in the sixties as well. And it's taken us <laughs> a little while to yeah. even get close to that. Any day now. <laughs> yeah. 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 I, um, I have a stack, a, a friend of mine, um, ended up sort of bequeathing to me, uh, a complete set of national geographic, Oh, cool! Uh, like going back to the 1880s. Wow. Uh, and I happened to pull out the 1959 one earlier, uh, yesterday. And it was like, you know, our path to the moon. And will we ever get there? I was like, Oh my God, this is so wild. Yeah. Um, Jeez. In we got 59, there and we kind of forgot about it. Yeah, this was a, this was an issue in 1959. Yeah, so they you know they were still working on it. Yeah, um, 
<laughs> cool. Well, Adrian, I'd love to pivot to uh, the last kind of part of the interview, which is the rapid fire round. Um, so basic sure. premise, I ask a few quick questions and you share whatever comes top of mind. Sound good? Yeah. Cool. All right. First one, what is your favorite book? Um, I have two answers to that. Okay. Uh, there's one when I was a kid, 12, 13, 14, that I read called uh, Power of One. Okay. Uh, which was coming of age story set in South Africa uh, and um, combination of apartheid and social justice. And it was a pop, cool. it was a pulp. Fi- I mean, it's not pulp fiction. It was a pop fiction novel, but for some reason that stuck in my mind. Okay. Uh, and so whenever somebody asks me this, I always answer that. And I haven't read it in 30 years, so I should go back and read it before I recommend it anymore. Time. <laughs> uh, and then uh, one that I've, uh, read not too long ago that I really enjoyed is one called Thinking in Systems, okay. um, which it took me a while to realize that that's how my brain works. Uh, and it also took me a while to realize that's not how a lot of other people's brains work, uh, which is fine, right? There's diversity is amazing and it's good to have different ways that people think about it. Um, but uh, for me, that is like when I look at an organization, I start breaking it down into inflows and outflows and how those interactions take place and what that results in. Um, and it, it means my perspective is very different sometimes from a lot of other people. Yeah. Very good. Well, next question. Um, if you could change thing, one thing about our industry, what would it be? Uh, the way the financial incentives have been constructed. Okay. Uh, Elaborate on that, please. So the vast majority of investment is going towards companies that are trying to find problems. Uh, very little investment is going towards actually solving problems. Uh, the better bug discovery solution, the better firewall, all of these are bolt on things. Uh, and yet um, the number of companies that, and the number of investments that are made that make a problem go away right? Uh, the acceleration of rust adoption, uh, in order to eliminate buffer overflows, like there's just no financial incentive there. Uh, but creating a new scanning tool, there's incentives there. Uh, and so it just, it turns out, I think that's, that's where most of the problems have, uh, have resulted in and why we've been so slow to resolve it is the money doesn't go towards actually eliminating the problem. Yeah. Now I've heard, uh, vendors not on a recorded conversation or podcast, of course, but you know, more, private conversations say, um, in a like shocking sign of honesty and admission saying, um, we sell our customers a problem. Yeah. And that's their, their own acknowledgement. It's all right. Now we've got to well, hire a person or a team and dedicate them towards something. And so. I don't think there's anybody that consciously does this. Yeah. Um, but if you look at the evolution of many products in the security space, right, you have a good technical team that's really focused on ch- solving the problem. They get to the point where they have a beta or a good version of the product. Then they hire a sales team. Uh, and they can sell that. Uh, and I don't want to say the pro- the problem, the product evolution and the sophistication curtails at that point, but it kind of does. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and that product continues to find problems and it continues to add, but it doesn't ever, it doesn't asymptotically approach eliminating all issues in that category of issue. Yeah. Next question. Um, who is, is someone or, you know, a few folks in the industry that you really admire? 
I have a huge amount of respect for um, <laughs> the grinders, <laughs> uh, the people who, um, you know, work hard, uh, keep making progress, uh, realize that um, every bit of improvement uh, is, is important and we should move forward um, and, and sort of get that done day in and day out. Yeah. Um, cool. To the grinders, I'm, I'm with you on that one. <laughs> <laughs> All right, last question. If you could uh, go back in time and get a drink with your 20-year-old self, what advice would you give him? <laughs> drink less. Um, uh, I, I, this feels obnoxious, but keep doing what you're doing. Yeah. Um, for me, I'm pretty happy with the path that I've ended up following. Um, actually, no, I, I do have a piece of advice. Um, cause it's, I bumped into it a few times now. Um, I love to be like fully invested in a problem and really thinking about it and caring a lot about it. Uh, and you can do that for a while. Uh, and there are some people, Elon Musk comes to mind where he can apparently do that for like a decade or 15 years or 20 years. Um, but for me, uh, it's helpful to, at the beginning of something, think about how long I think it's going to take to get to the major milestone and anchor on that's how long it's going to take. And you're going to invest really, really hard in caring about it until then. Uh, and at that point, it's okay to feel like you've achieved something and then go try to do something different. Yeah. Because uh, there's part of me, uh, I don't know if it's my heritage or my upbringing or my religious value, what it is, but there's part of me that's like, no, I have to continue doing this thing because I started it and I'm committed to it. Yeah. Um, and that gets me into trouble. <laughs> uh, because you sort of start going, oh, I might want to do this other thing. And I, uh, so I think for me, it's, you know, identify what it is that you want to accomplish and then be comfortable once you've accomplished that mm -hmm. moving on. Yeah. I think that's key. Love it. Well, Adrian, I've really enjoyed this man. Thank you so much for, uh, for taking the time and, and chatting with me today. Um, hope you enjoy the summer with the kids and, uh, yeah, it's going to be fun. Get some time in the air as well. So thank you, you again. <laughs> All right. Talk to you later, Joey.